Welcome to The Math of You, a podcast about formative media from when we were young. I'm Lucas Brown. On this, our 79th episode, I'll be talking to Katie Schenkel, comic book writer and podcaster, about childhood summers and kids' WB cartoons. Along the way, we discuss grass stains, skinned knees, and loophole abuse in wish-granting coins, the incredibly dark body horror center of the Animorphs Tootsie Pop, and how Animaniacs was the great illustrated classics of Saturday morning cartoons. We'll finish the show with our signature cocktail and let you know how you can become a guest on The Math of You. We join this conversation already in progress. Why don't you say who you are and what makes you a beautiful and unique snowflake? I'm Katie Schenkel. I am mostly known for being on Twitter a lot. That's not really fair, but I know that a lot of people have found me through my very prolific Twitter feed. In the past, I've done comic critic work. I wrote for Comic Alliance and the Mary Sue and... R.I.P. Pour one out. Yeah. Actually, and also Panels.net, which while it became Book Riot, it's still R.I.P. Panels.net. Since then, I've also... I've written some comics. Also, I'm doing a couple podcasts of my own. Supergirl Gab with Chris Haley and Crystal Claude's with Elle Collins. They are about Supergirl and Steven Universe, respectively. And then my current comics right now, I was the writer for Moonlighters, which was a comic about werewolves in college, and they're all very queer, and it's all about friendship and working together. And then I have a graphic novel coming out very soon called The Cardboard Kingdom with Chad Sell and several other writers. Yeah, and we need to talk about Cardboard Kingdom because here's the thing. You were incredibly, incredibly nice and sent me along a PDF so I could have a read and we can talk about it. And so I read it this morning. You know, I woke up, made myself a cup of coffee, sat down on the couch with my laptop and read the Cardboard Kingdom. And how dare you? <laughs> oh my God. Okay, listeners, Cardboard Kingdom is about a bunch of kids over the summer and playing make-believe with cardboard boxes and fantasy characters and stuff. And the heart in this book, oh, it, it is 100% my shit. You've got beautiful relationships between friends and siblings and parents. And it's uh, between six and seven this morning, and we're recording at just before eight. I have cried four times because it is a beautiful book. Specifically, like, the story that has your name up front about the Big Banshee. Yes. Specifically as a kid who was mostly a quiet kid, but would get overexcited and over-talk about stuff and have to be reined in. And especially a kid who was clumsy and would occasionally, like, knock stuff over or break stuff. This, uh, this slayed me. <laughs> I am dead. You were speaking to a ghost. 
That's, so. I mean, we don't want to murder people. That's not the purpose of the book. But yeah, the reason why we made this was for adults like us who went through this because we just did almost the entire creative team did an interview with Comicosity recently. And when they asked like, well, what's your story about? We all were like, oh, well, it's about a kid that was like us when we were growing up. Like, oh, who do you relate to? Oh, I relate to my own character because I wrote it about <laughs> my own experiences. That was pretty much throughout the entire book. This is a very personal story for each of us. And one of the things we really wanted was to make people feel moved, honestly, and to relate to it. And obviously then it's also about, I think our number one goal was for kids going through the same stuff and just giving them the book that we wish we had as kids. That's been a really through line for all of us working on this thing. So it makes me extremely happy that it moved you so much, honestly. So you're welcome. You're welcome for feeling the feelings. <laughs> yeah, 100%. And because you mentioned briefly about the kind of the art and framing it from a kid's perspective. And so much of the art supports that in that you know, in this imaginary world, you know, it's budget free and it can be as big and epic as it needs to be. But then when it kind of bumps into the adult world a little bit, everything is kind of kept at adult waist level because that's the viewpoint of a kid. Yeah. And I always, I always like touches like that. Yeah. There's one of the stories, it's actually the gargoyle. One of my favorite things is that there's a character who we don't see the face of until like towards the very end because it's a very antagonistic adult character and again chad sell who's our artist and also the person who kind of came up with the entire concept of the book is so talented i was extremely lucky to have my first comic creation experience be with chad because he's so talented and that part in particular the way the tone is set with that chapter is so lovely and it creates this tension that's really interesting and we do it a lot of the stories are from the kids point of view but that one in particular I feel like does a really good job of making you be in the eyes of that kid so listeners if we haven't convinced you yet allow me to say it plainly go and read this damn book as soon as it comes out which is June what fifth June 5th it is embedded in my brain <laughs> <laughs> that date has been on my mind for two years since we got it sold, basically. So actually, I think, all right, maybe like a year or so. I think our, <laughs> only because the date wasn't officially set until about a year ago, but you get my point. I double check how many days it is <laughs> at this point because I'm just waiting. I love this book. I think it's really special. I'm allowed to say that because other people helped me make it. And, and I think it's going to be really important to a lot of kids. So I'm excited to see it get into kids' hands. Absolutely. So yeah, buy two. Buy one for yourself and one to give to a kid in your life. How's that? Or three or four, however many. <laughs> I, I really wanted to get to that point where I can get residuals. So like, however many you guys want to buy is okay by me. Build a bunch of them and then make yourself like a cardboard armor yeah. out of copies of the trade. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Katie. Well, let's talk about you. So yeah. where else did you grow up? So I was, I hate to, like, I was born in a small hospital, but um, <laughs> I was born in Wisconsin, but I barely remember it. We only lived there for like a year or so. I lived very briefly for about a year or so with my grandmother and my mom uh, while my dad was working in the suburbs of Chicago to get money so that we could all live together. So I have vague memories of living in my grandmother's home. And then I spent my childhood through third grade in uh, Lake Zurich, Illinois. And then we moved to Brownsburg, Indiana. And I lived 20 years almost to the day in Indiana before 
moving to Chicago. So I've been entirely a Midwest person for my entire existence. I've never not lived in the Midwest. And I mean, I know from someone who's continually been outside of the United States. I mean, I originally was raised in Canada and then moved to Australia. Uh, I have a view of what media wants me to think the Midwest is. <laughs> is that view incorrect? You know, it's so funny because when people are like, oh, it's set in Indiana, before Parks and Rec, Indiana was only farmland. It was only farmland. And there is a lot of farmland, but there's also a lot of like Indianapolis is a city. It's a middle city. I don't know. I feel like there's a lot of variety in the Midwest experience that doesn't get shown in pop culture. There are a lot of not white people, for instance, especially in cities. But I also was like, admittedly, I grew up in kind of suburbs at the beginning, but then like out near farmland, like a suburb near a farm. So I'm not entirely, I don't know, this is a long answer for an easy question, <laughs> but I feel like there's a lot of nuance to the Midwest that uh, a lot of people don't get from the media. Mine, my experience as a child was pretty suburban focused in terms of cul-de-sacs and neighborhoods and everything. So when you say suburban, I'm picturing lots and lots of, you know, riding bikes around, walking to school, that kind of thing, or fill me in. We did have to drive, like the school was far enough that we had to drive. But in terms of, yeah, like bikes were a huge part of my young experience. We had a playground nearby. It was not dissimilar from the kind of neighborhood that the Cardboard Kingdom's in, honestly. There's a lot of that. And part of that is because Chad is actually from Michigan too. So there is a lot of Midwest sensibility that goes into the book. And I think that we pulled a lot from that. But yeah, that was kind of, that was where I was at. I, well, it's funny because I was, I was still like a kid who liked playing video games. Like I was so jealous of people who had Nintendo. We did not have Nintendo growing up until I think I was maybe like 10 or 11. And then we had Sega because we were a Sega family. But, <laughs> but yeah, growing up, like I was super jealous of my friend's Mario game. I really liked reading and being indoors but I also was actually pretty like summer was very much I run out and I have adventures and I like my bike I used all the time when we moved to Indiana we actually had like a huge backyard with a lot of woods behind it so I would try to go back there and then I find like an animal skull and I think that was the coolest thing ever <laughs> that slowed down because I ended up getting into swimming and so like that took up all of my time so I didn't get to go outdoors as much but I was one of those kids where like summertime was about staying out until the sun went down and catching fireflies and trying to jump over the creek behind the house and hope that you don't get your shoes wet, that sort of thing. Skin knees and grass stains. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Cool. Well, you kind of preempted the next question. I was going to say, what sort of kid were you? But that seems to have wrapped that up. But yeah, I was one of those kids where I was, again, the Cardboard Kingdom is, for my part, is very autobiographical. I was very similar to Sophie and my character, who is, she's very loud and she's opinionated and she likes just having space to run and be herself. And that was something that I really wanted to portray in the book because it was something that I related to. I was like, yeah, I was that kid who like, I would want to like just run widely into the world. That was kind of my attitude when I was a little kid. 
But I also really love to read. We went to the library a lot when I was a really young kid and libraries were the coolest thing to me. So there was a decent amount of me being kind of, well, I did love the outdoors. I also was very much like an indoor kid. Like I could sit with a book all day and just like read all the way through it. So. So in those times, what sort of books were getting your attention? I was actually deep into the Babysitter's Club for the longest time. Scholastic did a mail-in book club, basically, where they would send you the new Babysitter's Club in order every month, and you'd get, like, little stickers and stuff with it, so... Some sort of Babysitter's Club club. Yeah, basically, yeah. I think it was, like, it was, like, the Babysitter's Fan Club or something. But, so, I mean, I was reading those religiously. I read them every month, but I also really loved a lot of older books, too. There was a Mm -hmm. book called, I think it was called Half Magic, where it was about a family of kids. It was always four kids because, for some reason, the 20th century had an obsession with families of four children. Yeah, that's true. It was the same thing with, like, the Narnia books. It was the same thing with... The Bobsy Twins? The Bobsy Twins. It was the same thing with the Boxcar Children. (laughs) And, of course, when you go to Marvel, it's... The oh, who are the kids who had superpowers? This is gonna drive power me crazy. Power pack, power pack, and it was always like two girls and two boys. This was about four kids who I think whose mom was actually a single mom, which I remember. I think she might have been widowed, whatever. But they find a coin, and the whole thing is that if you wish on it, it only gives you half of the thing you wanted. So you had to be oh. careful to ask for double the stuff so you get exactly what you wanted. <laughs> I think it was like from the 60s or something, but I found it in the library and I thought it was the best book. This was like right before Harry Potter too. So like I was right in there. Oh, actually speaking of Harry Potter, the other one before Harry Potter was the So You Want to Be a Wizard <laughs> series. I don't know if you ever read yeah. it. Did you? I've heard of it, but I didn't read it. Okay. It's very much like it's not a wizarding school, but it's about I think it's a if I recall it was about a girl who found a book called so you want to be a wizard it was basically like a how to use magic it was very good the other couple that were really influential to me was uh, Wrinkle in Time which I remember we were at Disney World like the night before we were going to go actually into the park we were at one of the resorts And I remember reading the book while we were already at the resort and, like, being more excited about the book than about going to Disney World. Oh, bless. Yeah, that book basically took claws into my heart and has never let go. So I I feel very connected to that book. And then the other series that was huge for me that I read, again, religiously, was Animorphs. (laughs) Animorphs was big for me. A few years ago, I wrote an article for the Mary Sue about how it was going to be mostly about Animorphs, but it ended up being about why I didn't get into comics and how Animorphs kind of was the thing that filled the comics hole in my heart just because I didn't know that there were comics that were written for me. They all seemed very night like this was middle 90s. So any of the comic culture I was seeing was like hyper violence and it didn't connect with me and it, it made me feel like I wasn't welcome in that even though I was a huge fan of all of the different superhero cartoons. Yeah, so Animorphs was really like my ongoing genre drama, melodrama epic that I was super into. More than anything, like, in terms of my... Like, besides, obviously, like, Star Wars and other movies, I think Animorphs was really my sci-fi connection in terms of just, like, intense body horror, weird, like, ethical issues sort of stuff. Yeah. Former guests of the show, Kit McCarran and Megan Bob, have spoken at length about their feelings for one young boy hawk named Tobias. (laughs) 
Oh, poor, t- like, yeah, that's that's some <laughs> Greek tragedy sort of stuff. I also, while we're recommending things, I've been getting into the podcast Vandalites, which goes through the book series, like, one episode at a time. It's very good, and I like the fact that they point out, it comes from a place of love for the series, but they also point out some of the questionable stuff on it, which I appreciate. But yeah, it's a series that, even now, I look back, and like, that was really dark. That was some intense yeah. stuff for kids. For all of this meme is currently being driven into the ground, the Captain America PSA meme, the best one I saw was him you know, sitting backwards on the chair going, so, you spent two hours in hawk form. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm just like, yeah, dead, destroyed, yeah. can't do it. Yeah, there's a lot in that series that connected with me, and even now I'm like, I should go back and try to read those because that's, like... They're pretty solid, even though they're kind of a mess. But they're, again, they're a mess in the way that, like, ongoing comic series are a mess. Yeah, and because I think they're so, um, because frankly, they're quite thin, those books. And you can can power through one, I think, in about an hour as an adult. But I think because you have so much content being delivered in such a quick period of time, it's going to be a little scattershot when it comes to, you know, tying it all together as a whole. But I mean, come on, that's putting out a lot of stuff in a relatively short period of time and building this world, you know? Yeah, and also, I mean, it should be noted, too, that Kay Alphagate has some ghostwriters on some of the books. No, say it ain't so. A children's series as prolific as Animorphs (laughs) having ghostwriters? What? Yeah, so, like, there's some uneven continuity and uneven writing there because it was not just one person writing the series. I've been listening to the Fandalites, and we haven't gone into the episodes yet where... I'm also behind, so they might have gotten to a few of them, but I haven't gotten to the episodes yet where they know for a fact that it was ghostwritten, so I'm interested to see what they think of that. But yeah, there's some really interesting stuff going on with that where, you know, you have the funny character, but... Like, spoilers, his, the funny character's mom, who he thought drowned, was actually taken control of by one of the enemies and is now, like, number one leader of the entire, like, invading alien. So he has to grapple with the fact that, like, his mother is trapped in her own head by the one person that they really should get rid of in this entire fight for humanity's survival. And of course he doesn't tell anybody, like he doesn't tell any of his friends about it except for the one friend who knew his mom. And it's like, why would you do that? It's like, because it's basically a comic book melodrama. And of course he's not going to tell anybody because that's how these things go. And then they find out later and then it's, oh, how could you not tell? And and they get to have a fight where he's like, I know you're in there somewhere. Mm-hmm. I actually don't know if that happens, but I can't... I presume it does. That's the only reason to have that particular twist. Yeah, I do think there there was a point because like the whole idea is that it's like an invasion of the body snatchers where the person still can kind of see what's going on but they have no control of their body and i think there is a point where they sneak on board one of the alien vessels and the alien controlling the mother thinks the son was just taken over and that's why he's there and she like casually mentions oh yeah my host is like freaking out right now because your body is her son i really should get her to shut up Yeah, I know. That's why I'm saying this. This series is so good at making you feel feelings because then you have like the first person narration of this kid who cannot tell his mom, no, it's okay. I'm not taken over by an alien and having to just hold back because he knows that would ruin everything. 
Oh, it's the combined, you're in there somewhere with, I have to pretend to be evil. Yeah. Yeah, it's hitting all the beats. Yeah, you're right, it's very comic book. And there's a lot of trauma. Like, very early on, these kids get into some major PTSD. They are basically PTSD-ridden throughout the whole thing. They become child soldiers. <laughs> and again, it's so funny because people see the covers and they think like, oh, funny kids getting to turn into animals. I'm like, no, no, no. They are screwed up for life. This has dire consequences. And they all have nightmares. They all are always assuming that they're going to die. At one point, one of them gets eaten as they're in an animal form and they have to morph back before their animal dies. And it like <laughs> the amount of body horror in this series is amazing. Many a subreddit was inspired. Yeah, exactly. You know, for kids. Yeah, for kids. <laughs> So I'm picturing young Katie, you know, going off into the woods and, and long summers, usually with an Animorphs book in the bag. But what other things were getting your attention around this time? I mentioned the cartoons. I mean, mm. I was a huge fan of like every 90s cartoon, period. Anything that was happening from Warner Brothers, I was a massive Batman the Animated Series fan. Mm. But I also loved X-Men. I was actually, I'm one of those people who also like Coke and Pepsi fairly equally. So like, <laughs> well, I, I think I have more connection and affection for DC. I have no problems with Marvel as the characters. Like, I love the X-Men cartoon. I thought it was great. I love the Spider-Man cartoon. But I do think the Batman Animated Series got its hooks in me very early. And I've just been a Bat Family fan for forever because of that. Like, a lot of it pulling from the cartoon. Something about Batman the Animated Series, where it's like, even though, yes, I know a lot of people will go and say it is a perfect, untouchable thing, but when's the last time they watched There's Batman in My Basement? <laughs> it just gets so much of it right in a way that, I hesitate to use the word iconic, but for real, it is. And it's just one of those things where you want to go to a touchstone for a villain or for a supporting character. Yeah. You're going to go to Batman the Animated Series because they have to do it in such a short time frame. Yeah, and I mean, and goodness knows, there are some episodes where I go, really, you did that? That was your choice? But there's so much good that that series did, and I think the influence of that series on the writers of comics now and the writers of... I mean, like, Harley Quinn started off on there. No matter what your feelings on Harley Quinn are, generally, like, the fact that that character sprung out of the cartoon. And Renee Montoya, also, yeah. which, like, if you don't like Harley, you gotta love Renee. So I feel like there's just a lot that as much as people say like the 80s comics and like late 80s comics influenced so many things, I really think that people don't give enough credit to Batman the Animated Series for how much it infused into the culture around Batman. But yeah, there was just, there was a lot about that that I loved. There were a lot of cartoons that were like on Cartoon Network as well and the WB shows and everything. Those were really things that I really adored. I wake up on Saturdays to watch. I mean, for all that you had these tentpole series, a lot of the cartoons that you had at the time were kind of weird experiments, you know? Oh yeah, yeah. This was the time of, you know, Sherlock Holmes in the 24th century or whatever it was. Yeah, or even, like, even Animaniacs, which seems so, oh, like... yes. Like, what a strange... The fact that that show exists... I mean, it's all because of Spielberg. They've talked about before, like, the reason why those shows were able to exist was because Spielberg was like, I think this is cool, and no one says no to Steven Spielberg. <laughs> he got those things made, and they ended up being amazing, but, they, like, who would have greenlit that? 
without this strange anarchic referential sort of sketch show of, of a cartoon that focused on like old vaudeville acts and also like random pop culture references and it's kind of looney tunes-esque but doesn't feature the looney tunes yeah there's a lot of that and then like i adored freakazoid as a kid i, I was just about to say freakazoid yes <laughs> when you talk about stuff that is Again, weird and anarchic and referential. I mean, the very first Freakazoid episode has a reference to F Troop. <laughs> yeah, there. I'm trying to remember what else. Oh, the fact that Henry Kissinger was like a major joke for one of the episodes. I think that is the only reason why later on Venture Brothers used him and his magic murder bag was because. Oh, yes. But like, it's really weird <laughs> that I knew who Henry Kissinger was. The problem, of course, is that they made him a delightful, like, mumbling character when actually he committed some war crimes. So, <laughs> as an adult, I'm like, oh, maybe they shouldn't have made him look so cutesy as a reference because he actually was kind of awful. So, that's something. I went straight to Futurama where it's like, it is all right, General. We have all seen too many body bags and ball sacks. Yeah, exactly. I'm trying to think. There was also like a Bob Ross reference in there, I remember. Uh, oh, there was an entire scene that was just Hello, Dolly, with one of the villains being Hello, Dolly. <laughs> I mean, I mean, oh, it it's is... so dumb, but it's genius. Yeah, and then like they tied it into Freakazoid. Like he can't control when he transforms into different characters. And he ends up happening to turn into Louis Armstrong. And so he does the whole Louis Armstrong thing to the bad guy. It is point blank, and it's specifically, clearly, the film version of Hello, Dolly. So it's all the mannerisms. Oh my gosh, it's... I remember watching the musical then later and being like, yeah, that is spot on. (laughs) Yeah, and I mean, it's something I've talked about with previous guests. This idea where people who are the age that we are grew up in kind of a golden age of, like, parody and satire to the point where you have parody references for stuff that you wouldn't see or understand for decades a hundred percent and i mean i think some of that happened too with looney tunes where there are a lot of old references that maybe kids wouldn't have gotten back like then in terms of like certain personalities and stuff but i think it then got replicated and to the extreme i think animaniacs had a um oh gosh what was it i think it was a deer hunter reference like then they have a whole or maybe, or no, maybe it wasn't, maybe it was, no, it was an Apocalypse Now parody. Yes, I remember that. An entire episode, I think, dedicated to Apocalypse Now, and I had no clue what it was about. Uh, it was like either Hampton or Plucky with, like, the thing tied around his head, and, like, just, <laughs> like... Yeah. Even stuff like, I still know the tune to Dance of the Sugar Pump Fairy because of Plucky wanting to play the video game at the bowling alley. <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot of really weird things that, there was an Animaniacs where they do, oh gosh, what is it? The Pirate Opera. What am I thinking? Oh, Pirates of Penzance. Yeah, they do a Pirates of Penzance parody. And again, I would not understand that for years. I would just know that it was kind of a thing. It is super bizarre how much of my like pop culture osmosis comes from those cartoons and knowing vaguely from like context hints. You know what I mean? Like you yeah. can kind of I feel like that taught us how to BS our way through conversations where we don't know what's going on. It was the great illustrated classics of its time. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Which was another thing that I picked up from the library because I wanted to read all the important literature, but it wasn't appropriate for me or my reading levels, so I read the illustrated classics. I thought I had read Gulliver's Travels for a long time, and no, 
Yeah. No, I had not. <laughs> For me, it was Jekyll and Hyde. I was like, oh yeah, I've oh, read yes. that. Oh wait, no, I, ha- I have not read that. That was something else. I actually went and picked up, like I was at a secondhand store and they had like a leather bound Gulliver's Travels and I'm like, okay, I'm going to do it. It's like five bucks. I'm going to do this. Yeah. Because I'm sick of saying that, oh yeah, that's the one where he fights the giant wasp when he's in Brobdenag. And, st- and I'm like, that is like less than a paragraph in the original <laughs> book. And they don't even get to the communist horse people. So it's just like, I can now say I have fully read it. And also, speaking of subreddits, there's a whole bunch of, like, giant lady stuff in Gulliver's Travels that (laughs) That didn't make it into the Great Illustrated Travels. But coming back to, like, Animaniacs and and just really other Fox Kids cartoons, it's funny you talked about how it's like, oh, it taught us kind of how to talk about media. Because, and this is something I think I discussed with, uh, I think it was Andrew Isla was on previously, and we talked about how... Oh, I love him. Sorry, I just wanted yeah, to... He's a love... Yeah, yeah. He's fantastic. I'm going to have him back on soon. We talked about how there was sort of this glut of these very media savvy, very smart, very anarchic, what I can only refer to as like channel flipping cartoons, because mm-hmm. you had writer's rooms full of people who had been raised on TV. Yeah. And so that sketch show dynamic really replicates like flipping through channels and finding something weird and then keep going. And so like there's one sketch in Animaniacs, I even forget how it starts, where they're in a video store. Like someone's chasing them around. And I think it might have been the director who's also Jerry Lewis. Yes, yes, I know this episode, yeah. At one point they get into a hot air balloon and she's like, let's drop a sandbag on him. And Yaku goes, no, no, let's drop a bomb. And they start pulling out all of these terrible movies like Ishtar and <laughs> War of the Roses and all of these things and drop it and they explode as they land. And I was young enough not to have the parlance of, oh, this movie is a bomb. This movie is bad. But I recognized the cover of Ishtar because my mother had gotten it from the library once. And I watched yeah. it and I never understood that that movie was bad because I was not of an age where I could go, oh, yeah, that's boring or bad or whatever. But it's me going, OK, so they're in a thing where movies can become real and these are bombs. So therefore they're bad. And so therefore then went and looked up the backstory of how Ishtar was this terrible box office failure and cost him millions and millions yeah. of dollars and stuff. And so, again, it's that thing of it's like, all right, we're going to give you a hint and then we're going to let you do the rest. Yeah, yeah. That might have also been the episode where they parody Jerry Lewis's, like, super serious clown movie that never saw the light of day. <laughs> like, and I found out about later, I'm like, why did they make this a thing in their show? The other one that I am still amazed that they made a thing, and they made a thing for our generation, was the Pinky and the Brain thing, where they just recreate... Um, uh, Brian's song. No, actually, that one too. That one too. No, no. <laughs> There's one where they have Brain go in to do voiceover, and it's just basically using Maurice LaMarche, who plays the who plays Brain, uh, using his impression of Orson Welles when Orson Welles had to do a documentary about peas and about oh, pea yes, farming. Yes. And it is, they just recreate that whole scenario of him getting frustrated by this entire thing and being like, why would you have it cut to something else when I said peas? Why would, that doesn't make any sense. And him getting really frustrated. (laughs) And they had this whole thing. And as a child, I had no clue what was going on. And later on, I found out that it was just them recreating it basically beat for beat except i think he says something blue in the middle of it and they changed that part but that was it everything else was just beat for beat exact thing that happened to orson wells but happening to the brain and again it is insane to me that they just decided like yeah this works for our children
children's cartoon. This reference to this, like, hidden gem that only some people have heard of that never actually aired. It's, like, a perfect thing to do. Yeah, this is our inside joke, and we're gonna just, like, put it on our children's entertainment show. It's amazing. Yeah. Maurice LaMarche, who, by the way, his Orson Welles is good enough that in Ed Wood, when they needed to have Orson Welles, they cast Vincent D'Onofrio, but then they just said, look, Maurice, can you just do it? And of course he did. Yeah. (laughs) Because that guy rules. He's done multiple times. He has been Orson Welles on various things, including The Simpsons, I think. And actually, I think also Futurama, in which he is a main character. He's everybody in Futurama. Yeah. He's like half the cast. Any commentary where he's on it is just like a must listen for me. But like listening to him and John DiMaggio just talk about being half of animation (laughs) yeah i haven't been watching dvds as much but one of the things that i used to do with my partner and i when like when our dvd player wasn't like super crappy it's basically just broken down at this point so (laughs) we use our xbox 360 for the longest time and now it makes weird noises when we play something so it's like maybe we can't use that anymore but one of the things we used to do during the early years of our relationship was just watch director's commentaries of like the simpsons and futurama because they were that good uh but yeah maurice lamarche is is just a joy to listen to yeah he's so good and actually coming back to the brian song thing becoming (laughs) brain song i still haven't seen that movie but i know it's about cancer and his best friend meadowlark lemon yes James Kahn is there just listening to this incredibly deadpan remake of this. I think it was from the 70s. It's this dedication to a particularly niche reference that I've only seen replicated in recent times in something like Archer, where they're going to be yeah. like, no, getting this one thing particularly right is more important than anything else in this episode. Yeah. And I feel like Bob's Burgers does that a little bit too. Yeah. And obviously, like, yeah, you're right. also if we're going back, like, home movies was all about that. This is what frustrates me when people make jokes about, like, oh, kids don't know what a record player is. I'm like, they clearly do. I know what Brian's song is about. <laughs> if I know what Brian's song is about, like, kids understand the concept of a record player. They might not, like, know exactly how to use it because they haven't used it particularly, but kids aren't stupid. They have references for things from the past, if only through, like, culture osmosis. Yeah, I know what an anvil is because of cartoons, you know? Yeah, exactly. Like, we all know what they are. Just, it drives me crazy when people act like kids don't, or, like, the people younger than them don't understand the very concept of a thing. Exactly. And it's like, I read when I was like, you talked earlier about picking up books that were from whatever time. I read a lot of those Tom Swift boy inventor books with their incredibly implausible inventions, like a train that could also become a plane that could also be a submarine. At no point did I think, oh, these are old timey books. I just thought, oh, well, it's science fiction. Of course, you can make up whatever you want. Yeah. I never questioned the fact that we already have technology that, for example, can turn on a TV from across the room. Yeah. I will say the other thing that I forgot to mention in terms of like my book reading experience as a kid, I was deep into Nancy Drew. Oh, yes. And specifically, I got really into the late 80s, early 90s, Nancy Drew, Tom Hardy, or uh, not Tom Hardy, Hardy Boys crossover. Tom Hardy, though, I really want to see show up in Nancy <laughs> Drew. That'd be great. Um, but no, I was... You turn up as, as Frank or Joe Hardy and yeah, it exactly. just get really gritty. Exactly. Or like that's their uncle. Did you not know Tom Hardy? <laughs> Dynamite's doing a new Nancy Drew comic with Jen St. Ong doing art and uh, Kelly Thompson. Ah, oh, wonderful. Doing yes, writing. yes. It's going to be Everything so I want. Good. Everything I want. Yeah, but now I kind of really want 
them to put in a thing where it's like, yeah, Tom Hardy is our uncle. What did you not know yeah. that? Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there was a weird time in the '90s where they were trying to reboot them into like I remember it was Hardy Boys Case Files. Yeah. And they even brought back like the three investigators, and they were doing things like breaking up stolen car rings and stuff. Yeah, I remember two of the crossovers with Nancy Drew in particular. I remember one being the Saratoga like races, and it was like a hor- like a horse owner died, and they have to. And they have to figure out who murdered him, <laughs> which I was super invested in. And then the other one, because as someone who's from a state in the Midwest that very rarely gets actually like depicted in media, I I totally dug the Indy 500 book where like a race car driver gets murdered and they have to solve the race car mystery. And it was in, you know, like I had been to the track before and I know the area, so... I was super pumped for, like, Nancy Drew and the Hardy Boys to be around the area that I actually lived. Oh, yeah. There was a part of me that always wanted to be a detective as a kid. I was super into Nancy Drew. I was super into any kind of gutsy female character that solved crimes. I was all about that stuff. That's what you should be, because those characters are awesome. They are awesome, and like I said, I'm super pumped for the new comic. Yeah, totally. Now, I am looking at the time, so we should probably start wrapping it up. Sure. All right, so once again, listeners, if you have not already been convinced by us to go and get the Cardboard Kingdom, go and get the Cardboard Kingdom. But if people wanted to find your other stuff on the internet, Katie, where would they go? Like I said, I'm very prolific on Twitter. You can find me at, at Just Plain Tweets. That's the main one. I'm Like I said, I'm also on a couple podcasts. I am on Supergirl Gab with Chris Haley, and we try to do that regularly we're catching up and then basically anytime steven universe is on l collins and i do a podcast called crystal clods where we talk about it usually from a queer point of view which is always interesting besides that you can find a general information about my work on katieshankel.com that's about it right now Awesome. And listeners, also, if you're interested in some deep dive pop culture stuff, Katie has also done two episodes of Into It with Al Collins. Uh, three, actually. Oh, three. And it was the Royal Tenenbaums, Justice League, and which one? White Christmas. And White Christmas. That is the one where we actually talked for longer than the movie's runtime. We had a lot to say about Danny Kaye. What? Yeah, yeah Danny Kaye rules. Of course he would. Yeah, exactly. All right, Katie. Well, thank you so much for coming on. This has been fantastic. Go buy Cardboard Kingdom. Yes, Everybody, please go. go buy it. I would like my residuals, please. Thank you very much to Katie Shanko for her time. When I asked Katie for suggestions for her signature cocktail, she mentioned that she likes sours, specifically amaretto sours, as well as Moscow mules and maraschino cherry garnishes. Now I'm going to let y'all in on a little secret. A sour is about the most reliable cocktail you can make. Here's what you need to remember. Three, four, eight. That's it. That's the ratio. Three quarters of a part of a sour ingredient like lemon juice, one part of a sweet ingredient like simple syrup, and two parts of a strong ingredient like literally any booze. I mean it, you can make a rum sour, you can make a brandy sour, you can make a whiskey sour, you can have and half the strong ingredients and have part amaretto, part something else. 
If you want to go for a traditional sour, you can add an egg white and shake it dry without ice in order to make a foam and then add ice and strain to get this beautiful like inch of foam on top of the glass. For Katie's version, I'm doing a non-traditional sour with some familiar ingredients. And so I present the Banshee. In a shaker full of ice, combine one ounce of cognac, one ounce of amaretto, half an ounce of maraschino liqueur, and half an ounce of simple syrup, and three quarters of an ounce of lemon juice. Shake vigorously until the outside of the glass frosts over. Strain into a pre-chilled cocktail glass, or into a rocks glass and top up with ginger beer to make the Big Banshee. They say that nice drinks are quiet and behave. They used to say that to me too, and they weren't right then either. Enjoy! The Math of You is recorded in Leichhardt, New South Wales, Australia, and is written, hosted, and edited by yours truly, Lucas Brown. New episodes are released every Wednesday evening, and if you'd like to be a guest on the show, simply send an email to themathofyou at gmail.com and tell us what you'd like to talk about. You can follow the show on Twitter at themathofyou, and you can follow my wacky adventures at Lokified, L-O-K-I-F-I-E-D, on Twitter and Instagram. If you have a few dollars kicking around and would like to directly support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash and pledge as little as a dollar a month. Or you can pledge as much as you want. Y- you could, you know. I would be impressed by that. Patrons get bonus cocktails, physical mail, and I would really, just really appreciate it a whole bunch. If you want to support non-monetarily, you can go to Apple Podcasts in the country of your choice and give a five-star rating. It helps people find the show. You can also write a review, and I'll read it out. Won't that be nice? If you like the music I play on the show, there's a Spotify playlist for that. Go to bit.ly slash themathofyou, with capitals at the beginning of each word, to find a Spotify playlist going all the way back to episode one. That's like 16 hours worth of music, including this song. It's That Did It by Sleigh Bells featuring Tink. I thought it was appropriately sassy. I update the playlist every week when the episode goes live, so make sure you subscribe and get the new music in your ears. Next week, I'll be talking to Shannon Maynard, podcaster and Emmy award-winning character designer, about kaiju. Join me, won't you? I will also warn you that my partner's keyboard makes a very, like, stereotypical clicky-clack noise. So if I'm having to look information up or, like, try to remember something and you hear a click-click-click-click-clack, <laughs> it's just, that's how the, it's cartoonishly keyboard-esque. <laughs> I'm the worst in that I, when I I've started at my office, I have sort of an office for myself for the first time as opposed to just mm-hmm. being part of an open plan kind of pod thing. So the first thing I did is I was walking past a secondhand video game store and in the window they had one of those Razer mechanical keyboards and I remember finding it. I knew what it was because I had once googled 
what is the clickiest keyboard on the planet? And that was the one. So I bought it, and it clicks both on the downstroke and the upstroke. That might be what M has. I don't... Is that the one with, like... It has, like, a weird symbol? Yeah. So... And, like, green lights and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Oh, it's such a beautiful noise. I think I just made notes. I think I did something to audacity there. Or my typing might have actually, like, typed something in somewhere, but I don't know. You might have frightened it. It's fine. It's still going. We stayed in Logan Square at an Airbnb that was known as the Retropad, which was, like, the entire upstairs of someone's house. And they had, like, the old refrigerator that, like, looks like the handle of a staple gun to open it. And, like, a pink Christmas tree... And, like, a wood stove. It was all just really lovely and cool. It was like living in a tiki bar. It, it was the best Airbnb experience because you open the fridge and there is a massive jar of pickles, a six-pack of Christmas ale, and a bottle of Jägermeister. And in the nice. freezer is a pint of, like, Reese's ice cream. And I'm just like, these people know me. <laughs> <laughs> these are a few of my favorite things. Which is funny because everybody's like, oh, the Midwest, it's so close. I'm like, is it, though? Is it really? Because it's actually quite far away from everything. Yeah, see, I was shocked that I attempted to argue once, thinking, like, of my position of superiority. Like, Chicago's not the Midwest. And then someone went, yes, it is. You're a moron. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I still remember someone trying, because I used to live in Indiana. I actually lived in Indiana for, like, 20 years. And I remember someone who is an American citizen, mind you. So they don't even have that excuse, but trying to argue with me that Indiana was underneath Illinois, that was directly underneath. I'm like, (laughs) no, it's not. I'm in the state right now, and I, like, it's not. (laughs) And then I finally had to, like, pull up a map and be like, right here. How do you not know it's right next to it? It's... It was driving me crazy because I was like, why are you trying to argue with me? I know if either of us is an expert on on where Indiana (laughs) is, it should be me, the person standing in it. (laughs) But trust me, I'm going to have a lot to talk about Cardboard Kingdom because... Oh, good. And I'm glad I was able to send it to you because I figured that that's a good thing. I I read it this morning because I wanted my impressions (laughs) to be fresh. And oh, my God, how dare you? I have cried four times since 6 a.m. this morning. I know. You have to understand. I've been working on this thing for like three years, like three years since I got the email from Chad that he wanted me on the series. We will talk about this, by the way. So I will try not to go into too much. Yeah, yeah. I'll save it for the show. But oh, my God, how dare you? I'm so glad that I was at home that I didn't try to read it on the train or something because... Ugh. I know. So, but that's the thing. Like, I feel like I can boast about it because so many other people co-wrote it. So, I I don't feel like I'm really boasting about myself. I'm more like, look at this thing that people made, and also I made like ten percent of mm-hmm. it or fifteen, whatever. But yeah, it's one of those things where for at least two years now, the book has more or less been done, or like the whole story was put through. And I've been telling people like, you have no idea how good this, how emotional I get about this story. Please be patient. I promise you it's going to come out, but you have no idea how I feel about this book. And so now that I'm getting actual reaction, I'm like, now you understand <laughs> how I felt about this oh. for like two years. So Oh, trust me. I, I, yeah, it, I, it like hits that perfect Venn diagram for me of like <sighs> people being nice to one another and finding good parent-child and child-child dynamics within potentially like, you know, broken family situations, which hits extremely close to home for me. So I was just like, yeah, again, we'll talk about it, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I will probably be, I have so much love to give my fellow creators on this that I might end up gushing about the book a lot. I hope you're okay with that. I'm completely fine with that. (laughs) We know a remote farm in Lincolnshire where Mrs. Buckley lives. 
Every July, peas grow there. Do you really mean that? Uh, yeah, but if you could start a half second later. Don't you think you really want to say July over the snow? Isn't that the fun of it? I think it's so nice that you see a snow-covered field and say every July, peas grow there. Um... We're talking about them growing, and she's picked them. Well, we want to be out of that snowy field. But I was out. We were onto a can of peas, a big dish of peas when I said in July. Oh, sorry. Yes, always. I'm always past that. Y you are? Yes. Um, can you emphasize a bit in, in July? Why, that doesn't make any sense. Sorry, there's no known way of saying an English sentence in which you begin a sentence within and emphasize it. Get me a jury and show me how you can say in July and I'll make cheese for you. That's just idiotic if you'll forgive my saying so. That's just stupid. In July. Impossible. Meaningless. I was just thinking that... You aren't thinking. Brain, it was my fault. I said in July. If you could leave every July. You didn't say it. He said it. You're a friend. Too much directing around here. All right, why don't we move on? Um, Andy Maniacs 406-859, take two.